You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. On this day, 12 months ago, the Dublin airport announced it was looking forward to its busiest Christmas on record. But what a difference a pandemic makes. In comparison to last year, passenger numbers at Ireland's largest airport are predicted to be down by almost 90% over the festive period. With access limited to the terminal buildings, it means we won't see the joyous family reunions, which for many are synonymous with Christmas. Our reporter, Philip Bromwell, has been gauging the mood among staff at the airport. It's not the season not the year, for the traditional Christmas carols at Dublin Airport. Instead, on a loop... To help slow the spread of coronavirus, please observe social distancing advice issued by the Irish Department of Health and keep a space of two metres or just over six feet between you and other people. The magic is missing. Very quiet. It's something we're devoid of passengers at this moment in time. Mark James Ryan is a terminal services officer. He surveys a bank of screens which show a very empty airport. Access to the terminals is limited to passengers, crew and airport staff. So today we'll see 4,000 arrive in the park in the boat terminals in Dublin Airport. Uh, in comparison to this day last year, we would have seen between 70 to 80,000 people fly. So it's a lot less people to what we're used to. Um, Many of our shops and concessionaires are closed up and not currently trading. So when you walk through our airport, it's a very different experience to what we were used to pre-COVID. Valerie Singleton feels the lack of sparkle as much as anyone. She's in charge of the decorations here and is known as the airport's Mrs Claus. I think personally and even talking to a lot of the staff on the ground, it's completely different. Um, I'm not saying the atmosphere isn't there. There still is a Christmas atmosphere to a certain extent. The emotion is not there. Um, you know, over the years I've stood and watched families embrace in this arrival halls with some of my colleagues and we have have our vest on to help out with crowd control. But the tears roll down our face because the emotions are very high. This year the emotions are very high, but not for the same reasons, unfortunately. Walking through the airport, those sentiments are heard time and time again. My name is Andy Davis and I'm a duty sergeant with the Dublin Airport Police. At the moment it's eerie, it's quiet, it's not what an airport should be. But right now it's a pale comparison to what it usually is. Christy Fern is sanitising a row of check-in desks. Uh, yeah, it's just empty. The cleaning supervisor hasn't seen anything like this in his 32 years at the airport. You think, great, there's no passengers we can clean. That's the good side of it, but you know that can only last so long. Um, you do need people here to keep your job, you know, to keep the place going. Uh, just obviously with no one here, it's... It's just dead. The place is dead. A year ago today, Dublin Airport was looking forward to its busiest Christmas on record. Twelve months on, everyone here knows this one will be the quietest in decades. Valerie Singleton again. That's what staff are feeling at the moment. The nut in the stomach is normally a very happy emotion when you see the embracement of families and you know, smiles on children's faces, in particular when the 
the army lads come back, you know, it's a really emotional time here. The emotions are different. The emotions are 24-7. You know, it, we want our passengers back and yes, people will fly again, but it's sad. You know, it's our terminal. It's our home. To help slow the spread of coronavirus, please observe social distancing advice issued by the Irish Department of Health and keep a space of two metres or just over six feet between you and other people. Valerie Singleton from Dublin Airport, ending that report by Philip Bromwell. Now it's being reported in today's newspapers that illegal action taken by Joanna Hayes and members of her family who were at the centre of the infamous Kerry Babies case in 1984 is close to a conclusion with reports of the state preparing to offer the Hayes family a substantial settlement. The family did receive an apology from then Taoiseach Leo Varadkarin from Gardaí just two years ago over how the family was treated by the state. Joanna Hayes was wrongly accused of murdering a baby found on a Kerry beach more than 35 years ago. For more, let's talk to journalist Maurice McDonough. Maurice, good morning. Good morning, Mary. You covered this case back in 1984 and the Tribunal of Inquiry that followed. Will you just remind us of some of the background? Well, the story started, Mary, in April 1984 when the body of a baby boy was found on a beach near Cahersavine on the White Strand. And it caused a lot of shock at the time because it emerged the baby had been stabbed 28 times. So obviously it it was a horrific story and uh, the talk of the country, not just of Kerry. And then very quickly what happened was uh, Gardaí obviously were investigating people who had been pregnant in, uh, in and around Kerry at that time. And Joanne Hayes became a suspect because... As we later found out, she actually gave birth to a baby on her own family farm in April 1984. So uh, Garthy obviously started to talk to her around that time. And that, that was how uh, that was how Joanne came into this whole story. And that baby uh, had had died on the on the family farm. on the farm. Yes, Joanne obviously Joanne and her family were brought in for questioning to truly guard the station. Now Joanne um, told guards at the time that she had given birth to a baby and that that baby was buried on the family farm. And um, well, they, they, apparently she said Joanne recalled at the tribunal that they didn't believe her and uh, initially, but of course the body of that baby was found very quickly on. On the farm. Meanwhile, uh, Joanne and her entire family, her two brothers, her sister Kathleen and her mother, who had all been questioned, had given an account incriminating themselves in the, the killing of the other baby. And, and, and when after a few weeks, when blood tests prompted the dropping of charges against them, there was a, a outrage at how an entire family could basically have a, a concocted a story incriminating themselves in something they couldn't have done. Mm-hmm. And so the tribunal um, was formed. Uh, and we got to the tribunal, which ran for a considerable length of time in Dublin Castle. Uh, some of the issues raised in this entire story, they, they seem now from this vantage point to be from a different time, almost an unimaginable age. But at the time, Maurice, it was a deeply, deeply divisive case, wasn't it? Yeah, it was deeply divisive and I mean they anybody who sat through the tribunal I think it was 70 days in both Tralee and later in Dublin Castle all these issues were raised. I suppose what horrified a lot of people particularly Joanne's neighbours, she's from a very close-knit community uh, Abbey Durney in County Kerry and her neighbours I remember were very protective of her at the time and a local women's group in Tralee also rallied to her defence and were um, you know, maintained I suppose a presence close to the tribunal in 
and solidarity. But yeah, the, you're right. The point is that uh, the, the evidence, it, it, it would be hard for people, to, I think, to believe the kind of questions that were put to Joanne Hayes. She herself spent 20, um, five days in the witness box. I think it was the longest any person had spent in a witness box uh, in Ireland at, at that time. She was asked over 2,000 questions, but she, as many people will remember, she was quizzed on the most intimate details of her life about her relationship with the father of her child, about um, her body, about her sex life, about, you know, stuff that it really was horrifying for people. And Joanne herself obviously found it very difficult. And, uh, you know, it was, it was quite painful and hard to watch. Joanne, I remember on one occasion, bolted from the witness box and was hyperventilating and later had to be sedated. Uh, it, it, was, it was really cruel, the experience, obviously, she went through that time, Mary. Maurice, thank you very much for remembering that time, that tribunal. The the apology came, of course, in two thousand and eighteen, and uh, it now appears that there there is a, they they are on the cusp of agreeing a settlement with the state. Journalist Maurice McDonough, thank you very much. There are just seven more sleeps to Christmas. From today, people can travel across county boundaries to meet loved ones. But with COVID numbers rising, how long before restrictions are back? We'll be speaking to the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, in a moment about Neffet's latest concerns. But first, let's hear from some of those people who are on the move this morning around a noisy Bosaurus in Dublin. They've been telling our reporter Ailey Sheehy what they make of the latest developments. Well, it's great for me because uh, my wife is from Cork and we're travelling to Cork for the Christmas period. So when will you be heading down then? Uh, the 23rd of December. And when do you plan on coming back? Uh, Stephen's estate. So um, on Tuesday, the Cabinet is meeting to consider maybe tightening restrictions before the 6th of January, and they're thinking maybe of tightening them around the 28th. It's due to the rise in cases. What, what's your opinion on that? I think it's, uh, it's right, uh, because uh, we just have to keep, get all of this. So the government is going to consider as well about maybe um, closing gastropubs and restaurants, um, uh, you know, before the 6th of January. What do you think about that? Um, I'm sort of half and half with that one because people need to get back to work and business need to keep going. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of uh, carnage after all this with companies closing down and pubs closing down and stuff. And we need to get businesses back up and running so the vaccine needs to be like it's no course at the moment you know i do i do think it's a good idea yeah yes um like the, the more people uh, keep apart is, is the better the better like you know and uh social distance is very important especially around the christmas period i will be going down to see my sister the sunday after christmas traveling from Meath to dublin how do you feel about um, the fact that restrictions have been eased from today? You can travel outside your county, you can have um, you know, people over to your house. Is that a good idea given the fact the cases are rising at the moment? I think maybe they need to pull back on that a little bit and bring in a few more restrictions. Commuters talking to our reporter Ailey Sheehy, Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan. Good morning to you. Morning, Anya. So the restrictions are easing today. We were hearing about people's uh, travel plans there, but Neffet wants tightening up before New Year's. Tell us why. 
So we've made an assessment of the disease, as we always do. We've continued to track, uh, to track the, the, the infection to make an assessment on a weekly basis, which we did yesterday, uh, uh, to make that assessment um, uh, available to, through the Minister to Government uh, and to make recommendations that we think are necessary to deal with what is a, a concerning increase in the pattern of transmission of infection that we've seen, particularly reported in recent days, but established really when we began to ease restrictions in the early part of December. Uh, and we think we need to take action now in order to protect, uh, uh, as a society, uh, not not just public health uh, and the the, the the experience we've had of the, the, the so-called second wave with much lower incidence than many other countries across the world, particularly uh, Europe, with the, where we have the lowest incidence now in comparison to other countries, where we know we've averted significant hospitalizations and, most importantly, mortality. We've also been able to do it while maintaining education and childcare and maintaining the health services for people who need them for things other than COVID. We don't want to have the health services and the hospitals and the GP surgeries and other facilities, uh, as it were, overrun with COVID when it's a preventable infection. We've been able to do uh, all of that, but we think if we continue with the pattern of transmission that we see at the moment uh, in a very short space of time, uh, we could find ourselves in early January uh, experiencing levels of infection that begin to place public health at risk to the extent that uh, um, um, uh, it begins to impact on our ability to, to maintain the provision of those really essential public services. So what are you recommending? Um, visits restricted to one extra household, uh, closing hospitality and a ban on inter-county travel. How soon? So we've made uh, uh, an assessment of what we need to uh, to do. We've made it in line with the Living for COVID plan that the government approved in the summertime. Uh, we have uh, ma- made observations uh, around when we think that should come into, to, into place and for how long. All that's contained in the letter that uh, we, we signed and issued to the minister last night. That will provide the basis of the government's considerations. Uh, I know, and you'll be aware, oh, your government has other considerations to, uh, to, 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 as it were, bring into its decision-making around all of this. Government will make the decisions, and I don't think it'll be helpful for me to start getting into the detail of, of exactly what the measures mm-hmm. are. Uh, we've made the advice ab- available. It's very clear that the government has a decision to make now uh, and the government will do it in its own way. What's really important for me to get across to your listeners this morning on is that for each one of us as individuals, there are still many things that we can do. So we've given our advice to government, for, but for individuals who are listening, uh, you can influence your own risk by listening to the basic public health advice. We know the country has listened in very substantial numbers to the good public health advice that we have issued since the very, very beginning, and people are well familiar with the basic measures that can be taken, including the use of face masks, the importance of social distancing. Uh, But now, as we plan to move through Christmas, it's really important that everybody re-examines their plans and limits their social contacts as much as possible in the run into Christmas and minimizes the extent to which they're going to have contact with other people. And in particular, they need to consider the vulnerable people with either underlying medical conditions or older people in their families that they're going to spend time with over Christmas. In order to protect them, they need to take actions now to begin to protect themselves from picking up this infection and bringing it to people that they love over the Christmas period. And with that advanced planning and with the the, Mm -hmm. basic adherence to those public health measures that we're really advising very, very strongly now, we as individuals can protect ourselves and our families and the people we love and have the kind of family Christmas a home-based Christmas uh, that, 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 that we think we need to have mm-hmm. if we're to prevent the, the, the ongoing spread of infection that has now established itself in recent days. And that, as I say, is not just a risk to our public health, but is a risk to the continued provision of essential public services around education, childcare and health services for 
reasons other than COVID. I don't know whether you heard Mark McGowan, the president of the Restaurants Association, earlier in the programme. Of course, it's the last kind of news he, he wants to hear because it looks as if hospitality is what's going to be getting the, the big hit after Christmas uh, if non-essential retail uh, is allowed to stay open. He said they can't cope with this yo-yo jumping in and out of severe restrictions. And he said there are zero cases linked to restaurants in the latest HSPC report. It's coming from households in your own data. So why are they being picked on? So nobody's been picked on. Uh, We've made our recommendations based on the COVID, uh, living with COVID plan, uh, setting out uh, uh, the measures but that we believe now need to be taken, but government has to make those decisions, as I've said. We've done it on the basis of the analysis of the data that we have available to us. We think the level of social contact that's now happening has increased. We've, we, can, we have the data that shows that over the last week in particular, we have significantly increased to a level we cannot cope with as a country, our social contacts. We have to reduce those social contacts. But is and that, that where people are picking up possible, the disease? In as much as possible, what's really important is that in all the opportunities for people to have social contact, we need to reduce those opportunities for social contact. And if we could do that, every time people come together, uh, irrespective of the setting, but particularly when that setting is an indoor setting, particularly where things like ventilation is poor, particularly where we have use of alcohol. And as you know, if we're honest, we have a challenge in, in this country. Uh, it is really, it's really difficult for us all to maintain mm-hmm. adherence to public health advice uh, when it's mixed in, as, as it were, with, with use of alcohol. But all of those kinds of factors come together to create risks that this virus loves, if you like. The virus loves indoor settings, it loves close contact between people, and it loves alcohol. Uh, and if we give it the opportunity, it will transmit very, very quickly. And that's what we're seeing. We've had too much social contact over the course of the last uh, two weeks at a level that we think we cannot cope with. Uh, that's feeding then into uh, yeah. an increase in our growth rate. Uh, you've heard about the OR number uh, between 1.1 and 1.3. We think it probably at this point is higher than that. It takes time for those increases to show in, 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 the, in the reproductive number. The five-day average is close to 400 cases a day. This is a level of infection that requires us to take further action. It requires us to advise that to government. Government now has those decisions to make. Mm. It will have other considerations. Um, but there's no sense at all, Anya, in which any particular sector has been picked on. The reality is that the kinds of environments in which this virus spreads are those in which people come together, uh, uh, come together socially, come together indoors, uh, and as, as I've said, with the use of alcohol, etc. But and, Danny and McCoy, represent- just to, the, the other point Danny McCoy of Ibeck was making earlier, that, you know, even with the good news about the vaccines, there's at least six months of this. I mean, how many more lockdowns? Well, uh, the vaccine uh, is good news. Um, we obviously have to get the, the vaccine and begin to vaccinate people. You'll know, obviously, what the priority groups are. There are many people in the vulnerable groups who are our highest priority to get vaccine to. Uh, we don't want those people to pick up infection now and miss the opportunity to get vaccinated and be protected uh, and to end up in the statistics, unfortunately, that we're seeing every day increasing of hospitalizations, intensive care unit admissions uh, and mortality. We've done really well as a country collectively to keep the level of infection low to prevent the surge in infection that Europe has seen. We changed course in early October with, where we were tracking with the European average to really reduce our incidence. To, to drop it to the lowest level in Europe. Uh, and we know we've averted a significant number of deaths, uh, something in the hundreds at least in the time period that's elapsed since we introduced those measures. We don't want to put it all at risk now as a country, and we don't want individuals to find themselves in a situation where a few short weeks or months perhaps ahead of being vaccinated, they find themselves being infected, 
because we've uh, we, we have undertaken too much, as it were, socialisation as a society and allowed this virus right. to spread again. Final question. Uh, Dr Gabriel Scali has been tweeting this week. The population of the island isn't safe unless COVID-19 is controlled across all of the island. Now, of course, uh, Michelle O'Neill will be talking to Mary in a moment. They're facing a six-week strict lockdown in Northern Ireland from the 26th. Um, out of step again, your, your thoughts? Uh, so, uh, unfortunately for, for colleagues in Northern Ireland, they have faced a higher uh, challenge with this infection over the course of, of, of the last number of weeks and months. The level of infection in Northern Ireland is three to four times, depending on which measure you look at, higher than it is here. And obviously they've had a, an experience in terms of mortality and impact on their health services, uh, which is really difficult for them and unfortunate. Uh, we continue to work very closely with our colleagues in Northern Ireland. Every week, uh, my team meets with uh, uh, Dr. Michael McBride, who's the Chief Medical Officer in Northern Ireland. Today, the North-South Ministerial Council, uh, there will be a meeting between the Minister for Health uh, in each jurisdiction. uh, And we continue to, as it were, compare assessment of the disease, the control measures that are in place, and as much as possible to work together. There are differences between the uh, the two jurisdictions, but broadly speaking, the kinds of measures that are in place uh, that that we have here, we think are the right measures. uh, And we think they're the right measures to enable us uh, and they've demonstrated already over the course of the last number of weeks and months, if we can keep up, if we can keep them up, uh, uh, we can maintain um, uh, and, and, and further suppress the infection, e- even in the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment. But okay. my core message now is to individuals who are listening. There are things you can now do as an individual. Plan ahead. Take the actions that you can take to protect yourself, to limit the chance of picking up this infection and bring it home to people you love who might be in vulnerable groups over the Christmas period. There is still time for you to take that positive action. Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan, thank you for talking to us. Organisations working with the homeless are warning that a requirement to prove a connection to an area when seeking emergency accommodation from a local authority, which began to be enforced earlier this year, is preventing people from accessing beds thereby forcing them to sleep rough. This comes despite a letter from the Housing Minister to local authorities asking them to exercise discretion to ensure people don't end up sleeping rough due to the lack of a local connection. Angus Cox reports. I'm not from Dublin. I'm from Wicklow. There's nothing down in Wicklow for for homes and to do with homes. So I have to come up to Dublin City. And then when I come up to Dublin City, I ring the free farm. When I ring the free farm, I tell them to go back down to Wicklow. Andrew has been homeless for six years. As he's from Wicklow and can't prove a local connection to Dublin, he has had issues accessing services such as emergency accommodation. They know me off by heart now. When I say my name, they know my name. And you say, well, it's on the consistency of I'm not from Dublin, so I have to go down to Wicklow. I don't sleep at night on the weekend. Basically, just walk around. There's nowhere for me to go, so I'll just walk around. Or just at the hallway, just stand in the door, stand. There's nowhere to lie down because it's wet and damp. Just say about one, two, three in the morning. There's no one else around. Literally, no one in the whole city. There's no one else around. Just me on my own walking around. But I have to do that. Just try and keep warm. So I just walk around till the minute opens up and then come down here happy till it closes again. Then I'm just back out. And when do you sleep? When I come in here and sit in the, sit in the chairs or something. So you're sl- that's the only time you're sleeping here. So we're in the canteen here where people have their breakfast and their lunch and that. There's not a bed. There's nowhere comfortable to lie down. But this is the only place you ever find a bit of sleep at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, there's nowhere, like, like, if there was, I'd be there. Trust me, I'd be there. Because this, this isn't living. When's the last time you had a good night's sleep? Yeah, I was in a place called Step Up, Step Down, just around the corner here. But that was nine months ago now. 
How do you keep going? I, I just break it down like when I leave here, I just have to get through it for a few hours tonight. I mean, this year I'm back up a half and then I come back down here half Don't look at a long time or anything because it'll, like, it'll crack up, you know? The Mendicity Andrew references is the Mendicity Institute in the city centre, Dublin's oldest operating charity supporting the homeless. Luisa Santoro is its chief executive. A local connection is proving to be difficult because by the time a local connection is sought to be established, a person is in need of services. We tend not to have information in advance so that we can work on this ahead of time. So when somebody comes here, they need accommodation, they need basic shelter, and this is not easy to provide without them having a local connection to the area that they're in. Prior to March, there was a system in place of one-night-only beds, which could be accessed without question for somebody as a humanitarian response. That has been eliminated during the first lockdown, so the bar is set much higher in terms of how someone might access accommodation here in the city. And yet we have a situation where there are beds that are empty. So this, for us, is a difficult disconnect to manage. The responsibility, in theory, is that each local authority manages people that come, become homeless in their area. But that assumes a fairly easy and straightforward application to have a local connection, which is not always the case. The difficulty raised by the need for a local connection was put to Minister for Housing Dara O'Brien on last week's Morning Ireland. I've instructed my, my own team there that it is not necessary if people need to, need to seek emergency accommodation and are seeking emergency accommodation, they're not being turned away and they won't be. I've heard of some, uh, some instances um, that, that, that may have happened uh, in the past. We don't want that to happen. The minister followed this up last week by asking local authorities directly to exercise discretion to ensure people don't end up sleeping rough due to the lack of a local connection. And although the Dublin Region Homeless Executive says it takes a humanitarian approach and will work diligently to ensure people who need shelter can receive it, organisations say the local connection issue is still causing difficulties. Luisa Santoro again. Although this has been applied all the way through the summer, now with the temperature being as low as it is, we certainly can't continue to apply this very high bar in terms of a condition of a local connection if we want to see people that are safe. COVID-19 obviously is a major risk and has been a disruption for everyone. But for this group of people, COVID-19 is only one of the risks that they face. Certainly sleeping outside and sleeping in conditions maybe in the Phoenix Park or on Grafton Street, that is equally a risk in the temperatures that we're in now. And that was Louisa Santoro from the Mendicity Institute in Dublin, ending that report from Angus Cox. A space centre in Ireland launched today in UCD and next year Ireland's first satellite, AirSat-1. Ronan Wall is the manager for the UCD Centre for Space Research. Ronan, good morning. Good morning, Gavin. What do we want a space centre for? We want a space centre for because we have a, a lot of innovation and research that's already been done. And what we want to do is bring together all those elements and get, if you like, to get a, a whole which is greater than the sum of its parts, just to show the world that we're, we're open for business, we're open for collaboration, we're open for innovation, for the good of industry, and we're open for exploration. And a satellite? A satellite, yes. Well, I mean, uh, Ireland's a member of the European Space Agency and there's 22 full member states of the European Space Agency. Ireland's the only country that hasn't got its own satellite. Oh. And that's why this project's particularly uh, exciting and that we need to position ourselves there to catch up, to be part of this uh, 
this uh, this a very innovative area because again this in, this area has been provided recession proof growth for for decades it's it's some an area where we have uh, a lot of heritage in Ireland and we need to make more of it we need to make more of it we're not going to be spying on anyone are we no, there's no imager uh, on board. Uh, we, we will be spying on some of the most energetic events in the universe, however, which is uh, gamma ray bursts. There's also a material science experiment, an advanced control algorithm on board, which will put us in a great position to exploit that for future missions. And presumably for many people who are interested in this area of research, who would previously have gone abroad, are you hoping to keep them home now? Absolutely. Another element of having AirSat-1 here is that for the first time we're growing space systems engineering capability and there's a a bunch of great young men and women that have put their heart and souls into this project and and right now at this moment are going through the test campaign for the prototype. Um, That heritage, that capability hasn't existed in the country before. And so having that, we'll be able to feed into industry as we go forward and be able to bring industry to, to, I suppose, increase our potential and get a greater return, both from European Union projects, European Space Agency projects, and in wider commercial market. Ronan, thanks for speaking to us this morning. That's Ronan Wall, manager for the UCD Centre for Space Research. Now, in Nigeria, government troops have surrounded the area where gunmen are believed to be holding school children hostage in the northwest of the country. This has shades of the Boko Haram kidnapping in 2014, but this time it's believed the bandits are looking for a ransom, and that's what's behind the incident. Chika Odohu is a journalist based in Abuja. Good morning, Chika. Yes, good morning. Thank you. There's some confusion, I think, about how many children have been abducted. What is the latest? Well, right now, the governor of that particular region where the where the young men were abducted is saying 333. Um, it is a secondary boarding school, so the boys were in their school uh, when this abduction happened. And so with that 333 number, it's not the final number. More parents are still coming forward to say that their child is also missing. You have to remember that the region where this is happening, it's a very rural community, so communication can be difficult. Trying to access the parents is difficult. And also keep in mind that the Chipok schoolgirl kidnapping in 2014 that took the world by storm and sparked the Bring Back Our Girls uh, hashtag, it took a long time to get that tally as well. So it's just because the the terrain that we're talking about, communication is very difficult, so we're going to expect to see some fluctuations in the tally. But for now, it's at least 300, specifically 333. And do we know exactly, or do we have some sense of of what happened? Well, on Friday night, gunmen stormed into this school uh, at around 11 p.m., this is not the first time that Gunman had attacked that area. They had attacked days prior, but they were repelled by government security forces. And we have to keep in mind that that region, which is actually the president of Nigeria, Muhammad Buhari's home state, has been quite prone to attacks. You know, the past year there have been several attacks, very unfair and fortunate. University students have been kidnapped in the past few months. And what's happening is that the border, because it sits on the border with uh, Niger in the north, so there's a lot of movement between that border. And so some people feel that some of these assassins and gunmen are coming from Niger, but, you know, there's just not enough control at the border. So these gunmen came into the school and kidnapped these boys and took them into the bushes. And this seems to be about money. 
Well, it may be about money, sure. That's what's been happening in the past uh, year. You know, a lot of these attacks are really about money. That's what it comes down to. But sometimes, even when the parents manage to pay the ransom, the, the, the kidnaps, the abductees are still killed anyway. So it's a very, very worrisome, stressful situation. And unfortunately, this is happening while the president was in Katsina State. He went there a few days ago to commission a an institution. So this is happening while he is actually in the state. And up till date, he has not traveled to the community where this happened. So he's facing a lot of criticism. You know, a lot of people are telling, asking him to resign. The lawmakers are asking him to resign, saying that this is this is too much, you know. People are saying he should declare a state of emergency as well and, and fire the service chiefs, but none of that has happened, and he has yet to make a public statement about this. Okay. Chika Adohu, thank you for, for all that information. Well, we're a year on from the outbreak of what was then an unknown virus in the central Chinese city of Wuhan. And of course, China has largely controlled uh, COVID-19 within its borders, even in Wuhan. And we all remember the desperate scenes there last winter. Life has returned to normal. There have been no new cases for six months. And this follows a super strict lockdown and mass testing. However, so far, there's been no public investigation into the source of the COVID-19 outbreak there in China. And after delicate negotiations, the World Health Organization team finally arrives in Wuhan next month to investigate it. As RTE's Yvonne Murray reports from Wuhan, there are still many unanswered questions. On a cold, foggy evening by the river, Wuhan residents keep fit with some Chinese line dancing. Normal life has resumed here, but big questions still remain as to how this modern industrial city could fall victim to a wild bat virus. A year ago, doctors who tried to raise the alarm were silenced. Within weeks, the virus was already out of control in Wuhan and on its way to the rest of the world. But now, China has a different story. Do you think that this virus came from Wuhan? Mm, I don't think so. I think if, if maybe uh, from another country. I think it probably came in on frozen foreign food, this man says. The idea that this virus came from overseas has been promoted by Chinese officials. And it's gaining traction. We hold the military games in 2019, in October. And all athletes from all over the world came here. Over spicy noodles in a crowded lunch spot, another Wuhan resident tells me a popular theory. We guess it maybe came from America. And at this brand new exhibition, the early missteps have been forgotten. The message is one of triumph in conquering the outbreak, thanks to the strength and wisdom of the party central. But China's new narrative is being closely guarded. We sent interview requests to scientists, medical staff and university professors here. We were told they couldn't accept interviews with the foreign media. Anyone dissenting from the official line is being kept out of sight. 
you cannot meet us to conduct a television interview. Can you explain why that is the case? I got a call from the government, this man says, who told me not to go out for an interview. Like with SARS, he says, the government concealed information. There was chaos, he says. It made me angry. But there are still so many questions. If this bat, coronavirus, first infected another animal before spilling over to humans, where is that animal reservoir and what's being done to find it? Here at the Huanan Seafood Market, which is now closed down, among the fruit and vegetables, some of the vendors were selling wild animals. Raccoon, foxes, snake, bamboo rats. And scientists originally thought this is maybe where the virus leapt from an animal into humans. But none of the samples tested here came back positive. On the outskirts of the city, we find the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a research centre dedicated to pandemic prevention work, and one facing allegations of a laboratory leak, a theory most scientists dismiss as a conspiracy. But again, we aren't allowed to ask questions. Life is back to normal in Wuhan, the scars slowly healing. As the pandemic rages beyond China's borders, people are proud that their city has recovered. The only thing spreading here now is the narrative that the virus didn't start in China. Fascinating stuff. Yvonne Murray reporting there from China. The government has announced a new route and branch review of the Defence Forces after a series of concerns were raised in recent years by Defence Forces personnel. The review, which will take a year, is one of the commitments of the programme for government. Among the issues to be examined are pay and conditions, national and international peace security and the Defence Forces in a post-Brexit world. Well, we can talk more about this with Conor King, the General Secretary of the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers, also known as RACO. Conor, Thanks for talking to us this morning. For Defence Force members, pay is the biggest issue here. What kind of issues is it creating within the force? Hi, Samantha, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, that's right. Many, many staff surveys have, um, have spoken about the, the problems with pay and conditions relative to the rest of, the, of Irish society and the rest of the public sector in particular. And, you know, it's been well documented in the media at this stage that we have a problem with recruitment and retention, which has fallen out of those low pay, pay levels like the CSO has us at the, the bottom of the public sector pay scale. And, it, you know, that would be notable on a, in, a, in and of itself. But the fact that we have a restricted industrial relations status has, has led to that situation. And where are the salaries at at the moment and where do you think they should be? So basically, you know, we can say 85% of the defence forces is currently below the average public sector wage. And we, did, we weren't always there. We weren't always at the bottom of the, of, of the table. Um, it's just the fact that when we go into pay negotiations, um, we expect our department and we expect our management to, to kind of bat for us because we don't have the, the tools of the trade as such in industrial relations that other public sector bodies would have. And while we, we totally accept the restrictions um, on, on civil liberties, liberties etc., that military personnel must endure, we don't expect that they will be exploited. You're hoping that this review will look at other things, structural issues such as um, the location of members and also things like equipment. Talk to me about the issues there that you want to see addressed. 
Yeah, first I suppose it's, I say, Samantha, that it's kind of disappointing that the calls of so many experts in terms of business leaders, academics, military personnel, even from the political sphere, um, to include the entire defence organisation, such as the Department of Defence and the Defence Forces, have been ignored. And we would just have a concern that the, the Commission has unnecessarily hamstrung itself and it's a missed opportunity. Like, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to really reimagine defence and security. But what do we want to see from this? Um, well, we're looking forward to the establishment of a permanent pay review body that recognises the unique nature of military service. And that's been promised and is very, very welcome. And I must compliment Minister Coveney and also Secretary General uh, Jackie McCrum for their, their firm commitments. But, you know, we, all, we, we say in, in Ireland, we're, like, we're always one more review from action. And, you know, we can't really wait 12 months for, for urgent retention measures in the Defence Forces. So we'll be watching closely. Um, it's a really, really good and really heavy, heavy, um, heavily expertise uh, panel. And I'm sure that they'll want to, to ensure implementation. So let's hope that the, the recommendations that they make are properly re resourced in terms of funding. OK, Conor King, General Secretary of RACO, thank you for talking to us. <laughs> The GA Championship has been a bright spot in an otherwise pretty dismal and depressing year. It culminates tomorrow with the Dublin Mayo All-Ireland, the women's final on Sunday, when Dublin shoot for four in a row against Cork. It is not the joy of the game, but any post-match celebrations that the Chief Medical Officer has cautioned about. The GA has appealed to supporters to act in a safe and sensible way, whether watching the match or celebrating. John Horne, President of the GA, is here. Good morning. Your thanks for morning, coming in. Last week, uh, it really does appear that that appeal from the GA at county level and nationally uh, for low key celebrations it was heeded uh, after the the hurling final yeah. uh, uh, and and welcomed by everyone. Absolutely, Mary. I'd say um, coming into the game, I was probably as nervous as um, Liam Cahill and John Kiley in the context of how the post match celebrations would go. But like all week beforehand, we liaised with the Gardaí, the local authorities and the county boards to make sure that, you know, any celebrations that took place were done in a safe and a compliant way with the public health guidelines that were being issued to people. Mm -hmm. And in that context, I'd like to compliment both Waterford and Limerick as counties, supporters and county boards for the way they actually did deliver on it. And I, I don't think there has been any negative reports about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's been a good outcome. And, and you will hope that that continues into this weekend? Absolutely. We've repeated the same procedures this week with Dublin Mayo, with the Gardaí, with the local authorities. We've engaged with local media, both written and uh, on radio, to actually get that message out to people to just, you know, celebrate, but celebrate in a safe manner. And I think Declan Hannan in his speech last Sunday also alluded to the fact that you know we had to be careful and we had to respect frontline workers and you know I've always made this comment don't tarnish the success of any team by it being you know caught up in a whole controversy of the pandemic increasing in any particular area and look you know the news today is that the numbers are not going in the right mm. direction so we have to be conscious of all that. And of course whatever happens tomorrow win lose or draw Sam stays in Dublin. Yeah, people probably thought that was a bit harsh on our part to make that decision, but I think it was the right decision. I think it helped the situation in Limerick last weekend. And uh, I think we'll have to, you know, just do the same again this weekend. What are your reflections now as you look back on the most unusual of, of championship years? Um, 
I suppose really, you know, key to it all was we got our own COVID advisory committee in place at the beginning and we brought in experts from the medical field to guide us through this whole situation because like our normal routine would be to run games and organise games, but not to deal with the COVID in the background. And I think having that in the background gave us the confidence then to actually work our way through the actual games. The club, you know, there was a little bit of nervousness there. The club went a bit off the rails. Slightly in the end, yeah, but there was a lot of games played and the problems only emanated from a small number of games and it was the post-match celebrations and, you know, we became very conscious of that when it did happen that, you know, we took action ourselves before Neffet or the government or anyone approached us and we actually shut down the actual remainder of the club championships because, like, once we organised the games, we were in no position to control the actual post-match celebrations. And, uh, and have you any sense of optimism that you could complete the club championships at some stage? They, they will be completed, but again, it'll depend on the guidance we get from um, the government and effort, mm. and we probably might have to get back to level two before we actually get that, or an exemption in level three, but I'd say it'll be back to level two before we unfortunately get mm. those games finished mm. out. Uh, and we'll talk about next year and maybe your expectations and planning uh, for next year in, in a very uncertain time. But I want to talk to you about what happened around the women and the um, the ladies All-Ireland semi-final due to take place in Limerick, then moved to Parnell Park, then moved to Croke Park uh, and and those difficulties around, around warm-ups for, for the Galway team. I know it comes under a different organisation, but as you look at what happened there, what are your reflections? Well, first of all, I was contacted by the LGFA and we made Torless available for the two ladies semi-finals but unfortunately on the same weekend there was a dual player clash between the Cork teams and the Camogie was set for Parky Cueve. So in fairness to the ladies football they conceded ground to the Camogie and they split up their semi-finals so they moved the Dublin Armagh game to Breffney Park and then they actually had the Cork-Galway game fixed for Limerick. Now Limerick got to the All-Ireland so it was taken out of there to Parnell Park there was frost in Parnell Park. I was contacted that morning at 20 past 10 and two phone calls later, we actually had staff into Crow Park and we had Crow Park available for the game to be played. And the CEO of the LGFA, Helen O'Rourke, actually contacted me and asked me for an extra 10 minutes that Galway had requested an extra 10 minutes to facilitate them. And the extra 10 minutes was given. They started the game at 10 past, but that was an agreement between Helen O'Rourke and Galway. So like from a GA point of view, like I felt we could do no more. Other did than, you? you did, yeah. did you feel you could have done more? Could it have been handled better? Well, I mean, from my involvement in it and the GA's involvement in it was to make the pitches available. And we acceded to every request except with probably eight days notice, Limerick had to be taken off the, the claw. Is it time to look again at the the structures involved in uh, ladies football in Camogie and uh, there's been talk of amalgamation in the past. Is it time again to to look seriously at amalgamation? It's interesting you asked me that question because yesterday we had a meeting at a very high level between myself, the Archdurahor and our counterparts in the LGFA and we're having one with Camogie this evening. Now, these are meetings that were long planned because we've had a memorandum of understanding for the last three years. And in actual fact, we're looking for a meeting with John Tracy um, in January to outline John Tracy the amount of cooperation that is going You're on. You're open to amalgamation, are you? No, we're working very closely together. We we don't have an issue with any of these situations. There's a very good working relationship. It's not out there in the public domain. There's a new registration system coming into place. All three organisations would be using the same registration when we put the COVID advisory committee together all three organizations work there there's a new player pathway in place all three organizations are working there the application for funding to the government was all channeled 
three working together into the government. So there's a huge amount of cooperation going on there. I feel people are focusing on one negative aspect of the relationship between the three organisations. Look ahead to next year. What are your hopes? Um, hopefully we'll get crowds back into the games because for, as a sporting organisation, we're very dependent on crowds for, crowds for our revenue stream. And if we can get crowds into the game, but again, they'll only be done in a safe manner with the guidance of the government. But if we can get crowds back, it would ease the financial pressure on us because we are under huge financial pressure as an organisation. John Horne, President of the GA, thank you for coming in to us. Students in Modern Irish Culture Studies at NUI Galway are writing letters to residents in nursing homes across the county. The initiative, titled Comfort Words, is a partnership between the University and Nursing Homes Ireland to help combat loneliness and isolation during the pandemic. Nasa Gorel is a 21-year-old student involved in the project and she told our reporter Joan O'Sullivan about what it meant to her. You know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for students to be given the opportunity from a lecture to do something kind and to be able to reach out to those who may have been lonely this year as well. And it's just kind of to show the elderly that to us, they do matter. Can I ask you what you wrote in your letter? Yeah, I actually talked to them about my home. Coming from Donegal, like, you know, I kind of described the view from my house. And I actually included a poem that I wrote about the view from my house and a few photos of um, like the sun setting. Then obviously about college and how things have been for us and how I know things have been difficult for them too. And I just hope they had a really lovely Christmas as well and I hope to, that they keep staying strong. Nasa Gorel there. Well, Barbara Carroll is a resident of Green Park Nursing Home in Toome. She explained how important cards and letters have been during 2020. It's very difficult to explain, but it's a very good, warm feeling to think that apart from maybe our relations or our friends that we keep in contact with by phone, it's nice to think that someone out there is thinking of us with the letters that we have received. And also, yesterday I received one of the care packs. I received one of the care packs with some lovely gifts in. It's a very good feeling. It's a support It's something that helps us, I believe, to cope with this dreadful, strange and difficult year. Barbara Carroll, let's talk now to Dr Nessa Cronin, who's a lecturer at the Centre for Irish Studies in NUI Galway. Where did the idea come from? Good morning, Rachel. Um, yeah, the idea came from um, back at the beginning of the semester in September, um, which probably feels like 100 years ago now to many people. It does, this morning. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but at the time, there it does, it does doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and uh, at the time, there was a lot of negative kind of nar- there was a negative narrative going around about young people in Ireland um, and the pandemic. Um, and as the semester progressed, I could see their heads dropping, uh, the Zoom cameras or the mics might go off, um, and they weren't really living with COVID, they were struggling with it. Um, and so I wrote them a little thank you letter during midterm just to, to thank them for all their hard work, for zooming in on class every week, for doing all their assignments and for helping and supporting each other. Um, and then I thought then how about maybe they might write a letter themselves. So we came up with the idea for their second assignment this year to write comfort words uh, to those in the members of the nursing homes across Galway County. So tell us then about these letters. I mean, what sort of letters have been written? 
Yeah, so um, so each student uh, is writing one open letter to all residents of one nursing home. Uh, we have 33 nursing homes across the county with a with 1,471 residents. Um, so some nursing homes will get more than one letter as when my third years heard about what my first years were doing, they wanted to get on board as well, um, which was fantastic. Um, and basically, um, I've asked them to talk about themselves, talk about their lives, um, talk about what it's like to be a student um, at the moment, what life has been like for them in 2020 because it's been really tough um, and also then at the end to offer um, some words of comfort and support and solidarity across the generations at the end of the letter. I suppose it's a reminder in a way that everybody has lost out this year and that no matter what age you are we have an awful lot in common at the end of the year. Absolutely. I mean, in a way, you could argue that these are the two generations that have been the most severely impacted by the virus. And I was very conscious of that. One group that got all the attention immediately in, in February and March were our older generation. And I was listening very keenly to the challenge that they had in Nursing Homes Ireland. Um, so when I contacted Michael McGlynn and Thaig Daly, they were absolutely delighted um, with, with the idea. So I felt that the older, our older uh, citizens were struggling with their physical health, but I could see that our younger citizens were very much struggling with their mental health. Um, and so while they might be separated by up to 70 years, we're very much part of one community. And I think writing letters and writing and literature, something we're very well known for in Ireland, is something that we could all do at this time. Mm. I suppose also what we tend to forget is presumably a lot of the students already have quite a bit of contact with, with older people in their own families. So, so they appreciate what's been happening. Oh, absolutely. Um, and on our kind of weekly classes and Zoom calls, um, I would learn a lot more about them. I would see, how, you know, where they were living. I would see their bedrooms. I would see their kitchens. I would see their families walking in and out, making cups of tea. Um, many of our students are carers themselves. Many of them are shielding loved ones, whether it's siblings or parents or grandparents living at home. Um, and many of them, unfortunately, have also lost, lost loved ones this year. Um, so very, very conscious of that. Um, but what was really remarkable, Rachel, is that they didn't want to talk about themselves that much. Um, they really want to put words of comfort out to an older generation and to connect with others. But I think what I really wanted them to do was to actually sit back for a moment and actually for them to write about how it's impacted them as well and to process that. And I think probably this letter for the first time since March 2020 has been the first time that many of our students have done that. Well, it's a great idea. And thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning to tell us about it. Dr. Nessa Cronin there of NUIG. <music> You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.